words to uh, to fellowship and have some refreshments, but let's, let's find our seats and we'll get into the word this morning. If you have a Bible, uh, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry, we have uh, pew or church Bibles that are under the chair in front of you, and uh, we'd love for you to use that. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that with you. It's our gift to you um, and a chance for you to be able to read and have a Bible of your own. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 26, and if you're using that church Bible, it's going to be on page 831 of, of the Bible that's in front of you. Before we get into the passage, you know, you might, be, you might have noticed a couple of changes. We have our purple linen that's draped over the cross. We have the changing of the colors that, that are purple at our table as well as at the pulpit. When I was seeing our banner or noticed our banner move, or change to a Lenten theme. And that's the season that we begin in today. Uh, Lent actually begins on Ash Wednesday, this past Wednesday, which somehow fell perfectly in line with Valentine's Day. Take it for what it's worth. <laughs> but it's an opportunity for us in this Lenten season to reflect, to repent, to be able to meditate on Christ's suffering in his death and in his resurrection. In my Friday email that I wrote to you all, Lenten literally, Lent literally just means lengthen. And it's tied with the, with the spring season. As the spring days increase in light and the days get longer, this Lenten season is an opportunity for us as we reflect on Christ's death and suffering to anticipate also this amazing hope that there is a light that is coming that is going to overcome the darkness. And so in this season of personal reflection, in this season as we sing songs and we confess our faith and confess our sin, as we look at this sermon series in the book of Matthew, yes, we're called to reflect and fast and to wonder and gaze upon Christ and his suffering, but there is a hope that as surely as the spring days get longer, we anticipate Easter when Christ resurrects and conquers death once and for all. And so as we start this series, we're looking at this Gospel of Matthew, but just two chapters. And it's this, these two chapters that basically are the journey that Christ goes on from to the cross. Everything shifts beginning in chapter 26 as he looks to his faithful death on the cross. And that's what we're going to look at, this journey of Christ as he heads to the cross this morning. As we look at today's passage, I just have one question for each and every single one of us in this room. Does your worship feel empty? Does your worship feel empty? Does your heart feel dry and parched? that the soul of your heart is cracked and what you really long for is refreshment. What you long for is worship that is vibrant in your own heart. Well, this morning, in the passage that we're going to read, we see this woman who is so deeply moved in her worship of Jesus. 
that she becomes a self-forgetful mess. And I think as we look at this passage today, I pray that wherever you are in your heart, if it's dry, if it's cold, if it's dry and parched and cracked, that the Lord would work in our hearts to be able to come to a place where we would experience renewal and revival, not just today, but through this Lenten season. So let's read this passage together. Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 13. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be any uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed, in the whole world, what she has done will, be also, will also be told in memory of her. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have in this Lenten season to reflect, to repent, to fast, to carry up our own cross as we reflect on your death and suffering. And ultimately, the hope of the resurrection of Jesus. So, Lord, I pray that as we begin this series, Lord, I pray that you might speak to us, that you might revive our souls, that we might be people, Lord, who would worship you and whatever God-given talents and abilities that you have given us, that we would become a self-forgetful mess drawn to our Savior who has paid the ultimate sacrifice for us. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would do that now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. When I think about the beginning of an important journey, there's a few journeys in our lives that I can think of, right? For some of us, we've gone to college. And I think about that journey that began, whether it was leaving your parents' home or sitting inside your dorm by yourself that marked this new journey of living as a single man or woman by yourself, left to your own devices and left to your own wants and desires. I think about, for some of us who are married, and that journey that you decide to commit yourself to for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, till death do us part. This journey that began on that one fateful day as you stood before God and all of the people around you. Or for in my case, I think about my ordination, this desire that I had and the call that I felt upon my life to begin this call as a pastor to you all that began at that ordination service as I received the charge, as it was a charge given to you, 
There's all these journeys that we've begun. And I think of one in particular, which is that first journey that really was momentous for me, was, which was my college. And I remember my parents driving me down to Champaign, Illinois, about a two and a half hour drive, and unpacking and helping me load everything, unload everything into my first dorm room where I'm going to be living by myself for the next four years. And as Korean parents would do, they, as quietly as they could without the other spouse knowing, would slip me a $100 bill, each of them. And them taking me out to the best restaurant. But that night ending with each of them giving me a card, describing how much they would miss me, how much they love me, even in their failure, asking for forgiveness about all the wrongs that they've done. But nevertheless, that you have everything you need in our love for you, ultimately in Christ's love for you, to be able to get through these next four years as a successful doctor or lawyer or engineer. Sadly, I've disappointed them. But there's these journeys that begin with a specific mark in our lives, right? And here, Jesus begins this journey to the cross. And it's very, very decisive, right? You read in this first verse of chapter 26, when Jesus had finished all these sayings. In every other passage in the Gospel of Matthew, what it says in any kind of transition is when he had said these things. But here, we have the culmination of everything that he's taught to his disciples and to the watching world. And now he's begun to set his eyes on the cross. And at the beginning of this journey, he has this amazing moment to set it all off with this woman. And it is this woman full of worship that can be described in no other words than her being a self-forgetful mess. She's a self-forgetful mess who's able to worship her Savior like no one else ever has. And wherever you're at, whether you feel like your worship is empty, your soul is dry and parched, and you're lost, I think here what we see in this passage is an invitation for each and every single one of us to worship our Savior as we begin this Lenten season, to love him for who he is, and to worship him in whatever way God is calling you to worship him today and every day forward. And I want to do this in three ways, is look at this beautiful act of worship, secondly, an indignant response, and then lastly, a question of worth. Let's first begin here with this beautiful act of worship. Now, what is worship? I decided to read a few definitions, but I've come up with my own, and it's this. Worship is a response of adoration, praise, and awe to one's beauty and worth. So in essence, it's when we see something that is beautiful, that is worthy, that we would then respond in adoration, praise, and awe. And actually, when you think about the word worship, it's just basically worth-ship. Whatever we find beautiful and worthy, we will respond by the inclination of our hearts to worship our Savior, 
Worship whatever it is, athlete, artist, author. We will worship whatever we think is beautiful and worthy. Tim Keller, when he wrote this article about worship, he said, you see God's worth and you give him what he's worth. You like that? You see his worth and so you give him what he's worth. And that's what's happening in this passage. There's this unknown woman. She's not named, but in the Gospel of John, we find out her identity. It's, Ma it's Mary. It's a Mary whose sister was Martha, whose brother was Lazarus. And here this woman, Mary, comes to Jesus, who's reclining at the table. And when back in the day, when they would recline at the table for dinner, they would put their feet as far away from the table as possible because it was the dirtiest part of your body. And they would recline with their left elbow, if you're righty, and eat. And so here Jesus is reclining at the table of Simon the leper. And as he's eating, Mary comes to her and pours this extravagant gift of this alabaster jar upon Jesus' head. Now, this alabaster jar was mostly made of pure nard. And the alabaster jar that she had was probably about a half liter's worth in this jar, in this glass or stone jar. And what she did was she basically just broke it, shattered it in half, took all that ointment and that oil and poured it upon Jesus' head. But what we also have to understand is that that pure nard, this perfume or this fragrance that she poured upon him was absolutely expensive. It was an extravagant gift of worship to Christ because a bottle like that as we see in these passages, is that it was about 300 denarii, which was about a full year's wage of a person's work. So for us, you could think about $30,000, $40,000, What do you have of that kind of value that you own? I have nothing that is around one year's wage that I possess in my house. The closest thing is my watch that I got as an engagement gift from my wife's parents. But she takes this valuable ointment that would take her a full years of work, and she shatters it, breaks it, and pours it upon Jesus, her Savior, in worship. Not just worship, but extravagant, sacrificial, costly Beautiful worship. I have a friend back in Chicago, and she just recently found out that her mom has stage four cancer. And after finding out that her mom has stage four cancer, she wrote this little, little Instagram story about like the two things she wished she could have done if she only knew that her mom would die in the next few months. She said, first, I would have gone and traveled all over the world with my mom, more so than with my friends or my siblings. But second, she said, I would spend every single Sunday morning, or every single Sunday with my mom instead of going out to brunch or sleeping in or hanging out with my friends. Now, what changed in my friend's life that she would appreciate her mom more? 
It wasn't her mom. Yes, the circumstances have changed, but her mom's worth and beauty has not. She's always been her mom in her character, in her gifts, in her beauty. But what changed was my friend's view and perception of her value and worth. And because of that, she wanted to do everything from then on to spend every waking moment by her bedside at the hospital. You see, here Mary sees the value and the worth and beauty of Jesus and is willing to take the most costly, expensive gift and worship her Savior. What does worship of Jesus look like for you and for me? What does worship look like for us as we begin this Lenten season to love our Savior extravagantly, sacrificially, beautifully? You know, I think there's a few ways we see that, we can see that happen. First, there's this idea of worshiping corporate, right? Every Sunday morning we come together and we worship our Savior. Hebrews 10 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's this aspect that we are called as a community to worship together every single week. Not individually, not in your own homes, not on listening to a podcast, but together as a family of God. But secondly, we see in worship that all of life is worship, right? So whether you're working, whether you're loving your wife, playing with your kids, conversing with your neighbors, as you take care of your children, all of life is worship. So whatever we do, there is this idea that everything matters to the Lord. What would that look like for you to be able to have that kind of perspective and mindset as we worship our Lord in all that we do, from the mundane to the most exciting, to the most heartbreaking moments? All of it is worship. All of life is worship. But the last thing we see is this personal, private worship of God. And that's what we see here in this passage. To be so captivated and enthralled with Christ that we must find time in our personal rhythms of life to be able to worship our Savior. I don't know what that it would be for some of us. Maybe it's early morning prayer. It could be reading the Bible, singing songs, writing a journal, or writing prayers to the Lord. It could be writing actual scripture. Before my grandmother passed away, she had given me an entire New Testament Bible that she wrote from beginning to end. And she wrote like five more to give to all of her grandchildren. For others, it might be dancing. Not me. <laughs> Painting or drawing, using the gifts God is giving you, writing poems. Some of us love to run. For me, personal worship is me getting up in the morning, and as I step into that shower, knowing what's ahead for me that day, to go and pray through those different meetings and what I have on my schedule, and spending that time in prayer in the shower. Sometimes I take long showers. Sometimes they're shorter. But spending that time in prayer, dropping the kids off at school, 
whether it's a coffee shop or I make my way here, spending 30 minutes or so in devotion and reading scripture and spending time in prayer and confession. When I used to run, it was running and being able to pray and lifting up people in the church and for my officers and the needs that are going on in my life or just praising him as I walk or run and see the beauty of creation. What would it look like for us to worship Christ, our Savior, personally? Psalm 66, shout for joy to God all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Did you hear that? All of creation worships Christ. What that means is that in our private devotion and worship to our God, we are part of something that is actually greater that is going on in our world and in the cosmos. We are not just doing something on our own individually, but we are partaking in our personal devotion, something that is so much greater than us. I mean, there's some of us, especially our millennials, right? We want purpose and meaning in our life. Here's the purpose and meaning. You are playing into something so much greater. That the stones will cry out and worship. That the trees are clapping in Isaiah. And in our personal devotion, we get to partake in what is going on in the entire universe. What does that look like for us to worship our Savior? To do otherwise is to deny, is to deny what we're created for. What is the chief end of man? It's to glorify him and enjoy him forever. What does that look like for us to worship? You see, here she is, Mary, worshiping her Savior extravagantly, beautifully. But that's not the case for all the others in that room. Because we see here this indignant response by the disciples. Read this in, in verse, verse 8. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. The disciples see Mary worshiping Jesus with this extravagant, sacrificial, costly gift. And the disciples don't see that. Rather, what they see is that they see waste. They see absolute waste. And the Gospel of Matthew translates this as indignant. In other parts of the gospel, it says that the disciples scolded Mary. They yell at her. They're furious. Another word that in the Greek is outraged. They're outraged by what is happening in this place where they experience Mary's experience of worship. Why? Why are they indignant instead of seeing the beauty? I mean, this is where we realize worship is actually very, very hard. Because ultimately, our hearts are divided. We have so many things in our lives that we see as beautiful, don't we? And we are pulled this way and that way and here and there. 
to whatever we see as beautiful. And so whatever we deem beautiful, we will go and worship. And for the disciples, their hearts were divided. It wasn't beautiful for her to crack open that jar of ointment that cost a year's wage. What they saw beautiful was what they could have done, what Mary could have done with that ointment. You could have used that money for the poor. You could have done other ministry things and fulfill other needs rather than use that to pour that on Jesus' head. That is more beautiful. Do you see what's going on here? They found other things much more beautiful than what Mary was doing. And I think for all of us in this room, why it's so hard to difficult, why it's so hard and difficult to worship God and become a self-forgetful mess is because we find other things more beautiful than God. Serving the poor is beautiful. It is necessary. It is good. But it's not the ultimate. Us finding more staff, trying to figure out what to do with this building because we're outgrowing it. Those are all good things. But so many times even ministry, seminarians, officers, really all of us, ministry, doing ministry can get in the way and distract us from worshiping our Savior. So many other things can distract us from seeing what is actually the most beautiful thing in this world. For us as parents, think about what we see as beautiful. It's our children getting the best education, taking all the AP classes, getting into the best Ivy League schools, getting the best job. That is what is most beautiful. And so what happens is those things distract us from actually worshiping our Savior. For others, it's our work. We love what we do, and it is great, and it's beautiful. We're helping. We're finding fulfillment in our jobs. And that distracts us, no matter how good and beautiful it is, from what is actually the most beautiful thing. You see, desire and beauty is connected to our will. And we cannot change and just say, well, God is most beautiful, so I'll just will myself to see him as beautiful and worship him like Mary. No, because our hearts are divided. We are prone to find whatever things that we think are beautiful, and we will worship that thing or that person. Emily Dickinson said, the heart wants what it wants, Right? And whatever we want, we will go after. Let me give you an example. This past Monday, I met with Dawson for our weekly staff meeting. And as we went, uh, we're like, where do we go? And I said, well, I know Moe's is every Monday has a $6 burrito special. You can pick any burrito. I'm like, oh, yeah, steak all the way. I always get chicken if I actually have to think about cost. But I'm going steak. And the great thing about Moe's is that you get unlimited chips. And I'm like, I told Dawson and I told myself, I'm not going to eat any chips. I'm just going to have my burrito. And what in essence I was saying was what is most beautiful for me is to be healthy. 
It's to lose my tire and to have the rock-hard abs that I've always wanted. Right? That is most beautiful more than the chips that are so good. And so in that moment, I told Dawson and myself, I'm going to not eat those chips because what is most beautiful is my health and to look good for my wife. <laughs> Hour had passed. I not only finished all my chips, but I also began eating Dawson's chips. Why? Because within an hour, what I found more beautiful was the chips rather than my health. You see what I'm saying? We wax and wane, and whatever we find beautiful in that moment or in that second or in that hour, we, our wills, will go after those things. That's how we work. That's how our hearts work. Margaret Manning, a writer, author, said, subtle and seemingly innocuous human desires can quickly become entities we worship. It is a reminder to ask, what are, what are our desires? And what do they tell us about what we love? Isn't that so true? Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, a person will worship something. Have no doubt about that. We may think our tribute is paid in secret, in the dark recesses of our heart, but it will come out. That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship. For what we are worshiping, we are becoming. Eventually, what dominates our innermost thoughts and imaginations come forth as that to which we give our allegiance and devotion. Do we love what ensnares? Or what liberates? Do we love what ensnares or what liberates? And you see, that question becomes a question of what is worthy. It comes down to a question of worth. And that's my final point here, is a question of worth. You see, Mary saw Jesus like the disciples could not. Something changed inside of her that brought her to the realization that Jesus was the most beautiful thing that deserved all of her undivided, sacrificial, extravagant worship. I mean, think about it. After all, she's the one who sat at Jesus' feet while Martha was cleaning the house, telling her, to, her, telling her kids to pick up all the toys and vacuum, while Mary just sat at Jesus' feet listening to his words. And seeing the beauty of who he was. She was the one who saw Lazarus, her brother, being dead for four days, come back to life just at the words that Jesus spoke. You see, G Mary saw Jesus, and in some way, not because of her will, but because of seeing Jesus, she was transformed from the inside out to see Christ in all of his splendor, in all of his beauty, in all of his worth. I just finished reading this book, A Gentleman in Moscow, by, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Amor Tolls, Tolls. But the setting of the book is during the upheaval of the Russian Empire, Russian Empire and the rise of the Soviet Union. And there's this man named Count Rustov who's been sentenced to living in this tiny little hotel room, 100 square feet. And this would be his life in this hotel. And through time, 
she has his, he has this opportunity to take on this young girl, Sophia, as, her do- as his daughter. And as, she ra- as he raises her up, she takes to the piano. But because he was stuck to the hotel, he could never hear her play at these different concerts. But it was the biggest one. She had grown up, and he wanted to see her play. And so he schemed, and he went to go watch her play the piano for the first time in his life. And this is what he said. Or this is what the book narrates. At the sound of the first measure, the count takes two steps back. Opus 9, number 2 in E-flat major. As she completed the first iteration of the melody in a perfect pianissimo and transitioned to the second with the suggestion of rising emotional force, the count took another two steps back and found himself sitting in a chair. In listening to Sophia play, the count had left the realm of knowing and entered the realm of astonishment. In listening to her play, he left the realm of knowing and entered into a realm of astonishment or beauty or worship. You see, it's not a matter of our will or our fortitude to be able to just say, well, I'm just going to love God more. It's when we see Christ for who he is, as we look and gaze upon his suffering, his death, his resurrection, our hearts are moved and something happens in us that transforms us from the inside out where no other loves become as beautiful as Christ. Look at verse 2. We get the entire setting of this book or of this chapter when Jesus says to the disciples, verse 2, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. You see, it's when we can gaze upon the cross, upon our Savior who was crucified, who was scorned and resented for us. Though he was perfect, who knew no sin, he became our sin, our brokenness, our shame, our guilt, and he placed it upon himself. Why? Because he loved us. It's when we understand the beauty of his love, the unconditional love that he has for us, when he knows everything about us, the dark dark recesses in our hearts of the things that we think about, the things that we have done, the things that we believe about ourselves, he says, I love you. And there's no other way to show it than to go to the cross for you. Though you were supposed to take that death and punishment, I have taken it upon you. And Christ does that for you and for me. And so when we see Christ and his suffering and his death, the Spirit begins to transform us from the inside out so that we might be able to see him as the most ultimate, beautiful thing in this world. Augustine, what did he say? He said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. That is why when we find other things beautiful, we are never satisfied. We are never content. Our hearts continue to strive for more and more. And we find substitutes. But when we find 
our rest in Christ, we will experience true contentment and beauty. You see, what Mary does ultimately points to Christ and his suffering on the cross. You know how? Like that alabaster jar that was broken. God's, our Father's most precious gift, his most precious possession, Jesus, his Son, was broken for us on the cross. Many people didn't get it. They mocked, they scolded, they rejected. But the fragrance, the aroma of his worship on the cross has filled the world ever since. And our world has never been the same. What's so striking about this story here is that everyone complained about the weight. Everyone complained about the weight. But no one complained about the sweet aroma that filled the room. No one did. My friend in high school, she brought her entire jar of perfume. And in the high school hallway, dropped it and shattered all over the floor. And slowly but surely, our entire high school was filled with her perfume scent. Crossroads, friends, as we begin this Lenten season together as a church, following Jesus on this journey to the cross, what would it look like for us to be filled with worship for Jesus so that we too might be an aroma to the world around us, to your friends and your family, to your coworkers and your neighbors. Won't you consider this season how we might be able to worship our Savior, first to see him, asking our Savior, Lord, let me see you in your extravagant love for me so that I might be able to worship you extravagantly. Ephesians 5, Paul writes, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful act of worship. But we are ultimately thankful for what you have done on the cross for us. So Lord, I pray that this morning, that your spirit would change us from the inside out. Because we know that we can't will it. We can't muster up our own strength to love you and find you as most beautiful. But Lord, I pray that as we continue to gaze our eyes upon you, Lord, that all other loves, all other beauties, all other worths would become so small in comparison to you. Lord, won't you do that in our hearts in this season we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue our worship this morning and as our children come back, let's confess our faith together. It's even through these ways where we hear and recite and confess what we know and believe that the Lord would change us from the inside out to see him as beautiful. You can find out on page 7 of your bulletin or you could look on the screen provided for you on the wall. Crossroads, what is it that you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. 
He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. To come to the table this morning, I think what we see here is beauty. You know, I think what is so universal, no matter what country you live in, what culture you grew up in, what is always deemed as beautiful is when one sacrifices for another. In the shooting this past week, you heard about that coach who shielded himself or who shielded his students and gave himself up for for them. And you heard in the testimony of others, he always saw himself as second. Well, here at the table, we see the most beautiful sacrifice in this world. He who knew no sin, who was God himself, died for you and for me so that we might live. And so as we come to the table, I pray that as you eat of Christ's body that is broken, as you drink of his cup that is shed, for your forgiveness, that the Lord would begin to transform you from the inside out so that you might see him as beautiful today. That your hearts would be stirred in more love to thee. So let's do that. Let's pray and ask the Lord to take these elements and use it for our benefit, for our strength, for our grace, so we might be able to be a, be a sweet aroma to the world, watching world around us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your Son who paid the ultimate sacrifice for us. Lord, I pray that as we eat and drink together, Lord, we might see you as Mary did. Not only in the perfect life and obedience that you live, but also in your sacrifice, the Lamb that was slain, so that, Lord, our love for you would grow and increase as we eat and drink together. Do that, Lord, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. On the night our Lord was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it. said, this is my body, broken for you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took of the cup. And said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sin. For as long as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you show forth the Lord's death until he returns. Brothers and sisters, come to the table. Reflect on the beauty of Christ that he offers you this morning. For some of us, you might not be a follower of Christ yet, and that's fine. We're so glad you're with us. Let these elements pass by you. Because in taking this, you will not find beauty. It's by faith, in faith alone in Christ, that these elements then become a wonderful sign, a visible sign of Christ's love for us and you. And so continue to ask questions. Come talk to me. I'll be more than glad, happy to talk to you. But let these elements pass by you. But for us who are, who are followers of Christ, let's take and eat and drink together. Hold both and we'll take it together, signifying our unity in the body of Christ. If you can't have wine, there's grape juice on the outer ring of each plate. And if you need gluten-free bread, we also have that provided for you. Just let the ushers know. Let's come and eat and drink together as we sing Beautiful Scandalous Nights.
sister, the body of Christ broken for you, take and eat by faith. And his blood shed for you, take and drink by faith as well. As the Lord has fed us at the table, I invite you to rise and let's give thanks to the Lord as we sing the doxology. of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of our God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore and all the God's people said. Amen. Amen. May you go in that peace and enjoy your Lord's day. Thank you.